Tianakwe. My name is Will Appleby, and this is Animal Matters. On today's show, we remember Regan Russell. Regan was an animal rights activist with Toronto Pig Save, who was tragically killed recently when she was hit by a truck transporting pigs. We're joined with some of those who were closest to her to share her story and the work that she did. We're also joined by Camille Lubchuck, one of Canada's leading animal rights lawyers and executive director of Animal Justice. We'll talk about Ontario's Bill 156, which has been dubbed an ag gag law, and what this could mean for those advocating for animals. Animal Matters is brought to you by Safe for Animals, New Zealand's leading animal rights organisation. We're here to open up for discussion the key issues facing animals. We'll go beyond the news cycle and dive into some of the complexities that surrounds the exploitation of animals. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron by heading to patreon.com forward slash animal matters. Pledges start at five New Zealand dollars a month. Patrons can unlock bonus content and get early access to new episodes before they're released. Your support will help us to expand the show and talk about more topics in greater depth. So, a lot has happened in the last two weeks, and there's a lot of news to talk about. Let's start with winter grazing, since it's that time of the year again. Almost every year during the winter months, we see cows standing in mud. The industry has many names for it. Winter grazing, winter cropping, strip grazing, wintering. Winter grazing is used in New Zealand to ensure animals have access to feed at a time of the year when pasture growth is limited. It's a system commonly used to feed cows, but can also be used to feed sheep and deer. According to the New Zealand Vet Association, winter grazing typically involves livestock being strip-fed forage, such as pasture or crop. The animals are given access to a measured area of forage and shifted in a controlled manner. When the animals finish grazing one section of the forage, the farmer opens up another section, or a strip. The animals may also be given supplementary feed, such as silage or straw in addition to their forage. It doesn't sound so bad in theory, but by strip-feeding animals on a confined paddock, they quickly strip the field bare. Combine this with little sunshine and plenty of rain, as is common in many areas of New Zealand in the winter, and the ground is quickly trodden into mud, sometimes even up to the animals' knees. Cows hate mud. They prefer to lie down and rest on pasture or dry substrate. If the ground is too muddy, they won't lie down to rest. There's a whole heap of welfare problems associated with this. When cows are kept in wet and muddy conditions, it can result in poor hoof health. It can contribute to claw lesions and lameness. The inability to lie down means they can't properly rest and ruminate. It also increases the risk of mastitis. Honestly, it's a common sight every year during winter. Last year, a campaign which was launched by environmentalist Angus Robson resulted in the Agriculture Minister Damien O'Connor launching a task force to improve winter grazing practices. Public pressure was fierce. Leading into this winter, agriculture lobbies have been bombarding us through the media with messages that there won't be any problems with winter grazing this year. Nothing to see here, we've cleaned up our act and everything is going to be just fine. Then the photos started trickling in. 
First from Fiordland, where a local had spotted cows standing in mud. They sent the photos to the Ministry for Primary Industries, who visited the farm and reported that there was nothing wrong. Two weeks later, the same resident took more photos of cows standing in mud in the same paddock. This wouldn't be the first time MPI haven't done their job properly, and it just goes to show that the industry's claims that winter grazing would be improved this year is a load of bull. Last week, Michael Mora gave us a bit of a wild ride in a four-part item spread over four nights on NewsHub. It was all to do with commercial fishing, the threats to endangered marine wildlife, and political interference. The first piece was about the Marquor sharks, of which 1,200 were caught last year by fishing vessels. Internationally, the shark is considered endangered, but the Department of Conservation says the population here is not threatened. Those figures are what the vessel skippers reported, but only 10.5% of all surface longline fishing trips last year actually had an observer on board. Forest and bird marine consultant Kat Goddard says on the occasion that observers are on board, they record more bycatch than what fishermen do. The second piece revealed that commercial fishers reported killing or injuring more than 2,200 protected species in the past two years. Again, these are just the figures that skippers report, and not all vessels have an onboard observer. This is a problem that onboard cameras could solve. They've been trialled successfully already in New Zealand, and evidence from overseas proves that they work. The idea of having cameras installed on all fishing vessels has been kicking around for years. In 2016, NewsHub revealed Operation Achilles, which was a leaked fisheries report that exposed widespread illegal dumping of fish. This prompted a ministerial inquiry, which found that MPI's decision not to prosecute over the dumping was flawed. As a result, cameras were to be rolled out on all boats by October 2018. This has been delayed multiple times, and was recently delayed until 2021. Who's to blame for the delay? It looks almost certainly like it's New Zealand first. Radio New Zealand on multiple occasions has revealed some pretty dodgy dealings with the party's New Zealand First Foundation. Fishing company Tallies donated over $25,000 to the foundation, as well as $10,000 to New Zealand First MP Shane Jones' 2017 election campaign. It also turns out members of the Tallies family hosted two fundraising dinners for New Zealand First. If you put two and two together, it does seem like New Zealand First are to blame for delaying the cameras again. It becomes pretty hard to ignore though when you factor in a recorded conversation that NewsHub revealed last week, where Fisheries Minister Stuart Nash places the blame for these delays on New Zealand First. Nash has since retracted his statement made in the recording, basically saying he misread New Zealand First's position. So are New Zealand First to blame? I probably shouldn't answer that question. Winston Peters loves to sue people. Cameras on fishing vessels, though, are a must. Otherwise, marine wildlife will continue to be at threat of extinction. The fishing industry is fighting tooth and nail over these cameras. And whatever they've been up to is working for them. The fishing industry won't be held to account without enforceable rules and cameras on fishing vessels. Currently, what happens at sea stays at sea. Those cameras are a must. For the main subject of today's podcast, we remember a Canadian animal rights activist who was tragically taken from us during a demonstration in Toronto. On June 19, Regan Russell, an active member of Toronto Pig Save, was hit and killed by a truck transporting pigs to a slaughterhouse. 
Regan was at the slaughterhouse, giving water to the pigs and being witness to their suffering and eventual slaughter. Regan tried to jump out of the way of the truck, but was run over. News of Regan's death has shocked animal rights activists all over. Vigils have been held across the world, including in Wellington just this weekend, to remember Regan and honour her legacy and the tireless efforts she made for animals. A piece of legislation that Regan had been protesting strongly against was Ontario's Bill 156, which is nicknamed the Agag Bill. Later in the show, I'll be chatting with Camille Labchuk, Executive Director of Animal Justice, which is leading Canada's legal fight for animal protection. First though, I want to learn more about Regan, her story, her background, who she was and what she stood for. I really want to do Regan's legacy justice, so I thought who better to talk to than those closest to him. Today, I have the privilege to chat with Anita Krein, who is founder of Toronto Pig Save, Jenny McQueen, also involved with Toronto Pig Save, who spent a lot of time with Regan bearing witness to animal exploitation, and two of Regan's close and longtime friends, Catherine Whitman and Julie Maui. I'm, I'm keen to discuss some of the things that Regan was doing, and she was obviously a huge opponent of Bill 156, which we've already talked a little bit about on the show. But to start off, I'm really interested in learning more about who Regan was and her background and, and where she came from. Catherine and Julie, I think you've probably known Regan the longest. Tell us about her. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm honoured to be part of this and to have the privilege to be able to speak about Regan as, as difficult as it is. Um, I met Regan when I was a young teen and I'd started modelling. And Regan was, is, was a few years older than I am. And meeting her and right off the bat, she just took me under her wing. She became like a big sister to me. Uh, there were days that were, you know, difficult going to work. And every time I saw Regan there, I knew that it was going to be a good day. And I had someone uh, covering my back. She was like a big sister who always had my back. So some four decades later, uh, I'm a grandmother now with three grandchildren. I have had Regan in my life on a daily basis. She was the kind of friend that no matter what you needed, the scope of it, uh, what it entailed, she would be there for you. She was in Winnipeg, as a matter of fact, with me uh, three months ago where I was doing an event and she flew in just to help me do my event and for hours worked with me side by side just as my friend. Uh, She had the biggest heart. She was the most loyal friend that I've ever had in my life. Uh, When she passed, the day she passed, my husband sobbed and said, in his six decades of life, he's never seen a friendship like ours, where Regan was just the most giving, loving, kind-hearted person. And her life was all about giving, uh, not just to the animals and speaking up for the animals, for women's rights, for human rights in general. And that was the person that she was. She was one of a kind a person who uh, didn't just talk the talk, but she walked the walk. I had to go back and think about exactly when I met her, too, because I feel like I've known her forever, but we've been friends for 18 years or so, and um, she'd been the first person I had ever met that was animal rights as well, and 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 up to that point, I had never known anyone, and she just opened a world up to me, um, 
that uh, I, 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 never felt a part of, even though I had strong views like that. Um, and not only that, I, she was she was just such a great human being and such a great friend and, you know, never hesitated to invite me into her life and into her world. I had, you know, I've, I've had marvelous times with her, so much fun. I, you know, I don't know. There's, I can't say enough about her. Mm. It sounds like she was really driven by her desire for social justice. Absolutely. Social justice was incredibly important to her. I, I, when people ask me about her, I say she wanted to be and was the voice for the voiceless, for those who couldn't speak for themselves, uh, whether whatever any living creature, human animal, she wanted to be uh, their voice, their advocate. She wanted to see any wrongs and, and anyone being mistreated. She wanted that corrected. And she was going to stand tall and make sure that people heard her voice. And there was nothing she wouldn't do, um, you know, for the weak, for the voiceless. And we know that because we know the day that she passed, um, tragically, that is what she was doing. She was, she was feeding the animals, the pigs who were suffering. And she was witnessing their suffering and doing anything she could right to the last moment of her life. Uh, giving to someone else, giving to the animals. It sounds like she was a tremendous person. And I think Catherine summed it up well when she said that she stuck up for people. She had their back, not just the people around her, but the animals as well. Um, Catherine, was it you that said that you got to know her through your, your modeling career? Yes, yes, that would be me. And that's how I got to know her was we worked together on a daily basis for many years. Um, Then Regan actually left Winnipeg and she moved to Hamilton. Uh, She created a program where she uh, taught humane education in the elementary school system. This was something she created and produced on her own, uh, knowing that how we treat each other, how we treat humans, how we treat animals, what we learn. You know, what is that saying? I learned in kindergarten. So her thought process so early on was to start with the young and, and teach them what, what is significant about humane education and the treatment of animals. And she created her own program and was hired by the elementary school uh, system in Toronto, and she taught for years. So I was always so impressed by that, and, and it just made sense to me that this is where we learn how, what, how we're going to spend the rest of our lives and how we're going to treat others is in grade school. So she created this program. It was very impressive. She obviously had a huge drive to change the world for animals, and one of the ways she did that was through her work with Toronto Pig Safe. Anita and Jenny, this is something you've both been involved with. Anita, could you tell me a bit about Toronto Pig Save and the work that you do and, and what Regan was doing as well? Toronto Pig Save started 10 years ago, 2010, with a dog, Mr. Bean. Uh, we, I would walk Mr. Bean and I saw the pigs in the transport trucks going to a downtown slaughterhouse. And uh, so what we were doing is bearing witness. We started a group and started bearing witness, meaning when an animal's suffering, don't look the other way, but on the contrary, come close as close as you can and try to help. And uh, so the, group, the second group uh, that formed uh, was in Burlington in September 2011. Uh, and uh, so in Burlington, there have been vigils bearing witness to pigs there for on and off for about nine, almost nine years now. Um, and uh, the groups 
in five years, there were about 35 groups, and then it expanded to 1,000 groups uh, in 10 years. And uh, Fearmints, uh, we've been doing vigils there weekly, and there's another group called uh, um, New Wave Activism that was also doing vigils there. And uh, we, 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 we were facing this threat from the Ontario government. It was proposing an ag-gag bill, uh, which would make it illegal to uh, congregate around a transport truck and come close to the animals and help them. And, and um, so uh, Regan, Russ, Regan was very concerned about this, and we had had a special vigil on July 9, June 19th. And it was, a, it was a scorching hot day, and uh, there were seven activists that came, including Regan, and uh, she was giving water to thirsty pigs along with the other activists for two hours, almost two hours. And, uh, but then at one point she was also helping, helping the other activists by standing at the entrance and, uh, enabling the other activists to, to bear, to bear witness. Jenny, you've been involved with some of the activism work that Regan was doing. What can you tell us about it? Part of the work that you do is bearing witness to what's happening to these animals could you tell us a little bit about why that's important and, and what that's like? Well, I always say um, video doesn't do it justice. We always encourage people to come and attend a vigil and to actually look an animal in the eye. Um, it really makes all that difference because you experience um, the smells, you experience the temperature that they're suffering in, and um, it, it really does connect with you on a deeper level. Um, and I knew... Um, Regan through some more dramatic activism too. Like each time that we connected, uh, there were three major times that we connected on a deeper level. It was when the truck rolled over, a, a truck full of pigs rolled over outside Fearman Slaughterhouse. That was one occasion. Another occasion was outside of Toronto Pig Save. It was uh, a more um, direct action in a dog sledding operation where she basically saved my life. I was being strangled by a chain. Uh, and she was the, the one who really took initiative and uh, managed to distract, even with four other activists around me, she managed to distract and uh, she stopped me from slipping into unconsciousness. And then another time, um, uh, a, a bunch of us, it was another boiling hot day at Fearman's, and a bunch of us ran into Fearman's grounds because we could see all these trucks idling and all the pigs suffering. And uh, she gave water within the grounds of the Fearman's slaughterhouse. And she was tussling with the worker who was trying to rip out the, uh, the water container that she had, rip it away from her hands. So I like to recall these instances because it showed Regan her true character, uh, not just someone kind of smiling statically with, with a sign. Uh, she looked very calm and compassionate. But she was, she was fiery too. She, she had great character and she was courageous. She was very brave. I can only imagine this is incredibly difficult for you all and I'm sure you're all hurting and you're all grieving because um, she was obviously really important to, to you all and was a big part of your lives. What do you think, to do her legacy justice, what do you think is the message that would be important to her that she'd want people to communicate? We have some hashtags that we've put together. Um, on the day that she died, we were, we were thinking, what, what can we do? 
we, we knew we wanted animals involved in the hashtags. So we have Save Pigs for Regan as a hashtag. And what we're finding is that all across the world, people are saving animals. So chickens have been saved, pigs have been saved in Regan's name, which is absolutely beautiful. So being active, like get active for Regan, uh, we're tagging that uh, constantly, taking action for her. Yeah. Can, can I say a few things about uh, how devastated we are by the loss of Regan? Uh, I have thought about this nonstop since it happened. I think about it. I think of it instantly. It's on my mind 24-7. And it's, I just, I'm thinking about this nonstop. And, and the only thing that helps is acting. So the SAFE movement and other groups have been mobilizing uh, around this. So there have been vigils around the world you know, from Mexico City to, uh, you know, Colombia and uh, Argentina, Berlin, uh, London, and you know, all around the world. And uh, there was a vigil in Chicago. Uh, and uh, I, I remember waking up in the middle of the night, and the only thing that could make me feel better is just to, you know, try to act. And I, at, to the vigil in Chicago, and she said what drew her there was, was Regan. And another activist said they would work 10 times harder. And I know I'm working 10 times harder now. I know it for a fact. And I, I, we've done memorial vigils at Fearman's, and there were two, 300 people that came out the two Sundays, and there were new people who had never came before. So um, people are getting active because of what happened to Regan. Regan was fierce, courageous, kind, compassionate. People who knew her said she was always kind to them. Uh, there was one woman, Malika, Three weeks ago, it was her first vigil, and Regan was there, and they, they had crossed the, 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 the traffic lights towards Fearman's, and at that vigil, Malika went from ve- vegetarian to vegan, and she remembered Regan sh- to talking to her kindly about, like, this is what happens at the vigil. She was just so welcoming. She was the first person she met at the vigil. And in terms of what's going to happen in the future, we are going to carry on Regan's legacy, we are going to def- repeal Bill 156, uh, which is an ag-ag bo- bill in Canada. We're going to try to transform Fearman's Slaughterhouse, which is owned by Safina, into a plant-based company. We are um, going to try to spread uh, the right to bear witness worldwide, uh, you know, safety agreements and so forth. We're going to, there's, there's a number of things that we want to do. And, 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 uh, and this is not a, a you know, a multiple month campaign. This is a multi multiple year campaign. And, and, you know, when we also want to have a Regan's bill of animal rights, which recognizes the personhood or sentience of animals, which defunds animal agriculture and puts funds into a just transition to a plant-based food economy. Uh, you know, it has all these elements that will create this kind, compassionate and just world that, that Regan was fighting for, for decades. Um, so, so the vision is big. Like, I can't tell you how many people are motivated to do more because of Regan. Like, you, it's it's incomprehensible that a beautiful activist who who was giving water to thirsty pig is run over by the meat industry. It's it's incomprehensible, and the whole world is is is, is you know the whole world of you know animal aware people are crying and and are hurting, and the only thing that can help us is. Uh, acting 10 times as much and, and building the world that Regan was fighting for so much faster. Um, I so agree with Anita. Um, 
my activity has, has strengthened even more. And um, what has brought me comfort is uh, some of the images that we've been able to produce. Artists uh, across the world have been producing amazing images of Regan and we're pasting up her image um, on, you know, all over the city or all over the country. And that, that image is spreading worldwide as well with the hashtag go vegan for Regan. So it's really helping me to see her image. But uh, at the same time, we're devastated. Uh, Regan had so much more potential in her. Her, her and her father were willing to get arrested uh, to repeal, to help repeal Bill 156. So, I mean, it's, it's incredible that the actions are being increased all over the world. And we need to remember, though, that we didn't want to lose her. We really did not want to lose her. Yeah, I love this saying, this saying that uh, the ladies just mentioned, and, and yes, how courageous she was. Go vegan for Regan. I mean, how fitting that her name rhymes with the word vegan. I was vegetarian when I met her many years ago. I've been vegan for years. And I think what you know the ladies are saying is that through this horrible, horrible uh, situation that we're dealing with, that so many people uh, have tuned in and seem to be listening and, and, and watching and looking as to what really does go on, even at Fearman's. I don't know how many friends and people I know commented on the misery and suffering that they noted on the transport truck when they watched the video, the news video about Regan's uh, death. So countless people said, well, I didn't know that went, you know, happened exactly what Anita was saying. And, and people don't know and they don't educate themselves. So my hope is that now, going forward, people will educate themselves, you know, know how animals treated, learn about the bill 156, know what's going on, like open your eyes and the smell, the sight, you know, exactly as Jenny said, people need to do that in order to be aware and understand what is happening and what, what they are eating on the table. So countless people to me have said overnight, I'm not you know, I'll never eat meat again, or, you know, we're doing this in order in honor of Regan. We're not, you know, purchasing meat. We're going, we're donating here. We're going to this uh, animal sanctuary. So I feel like the outpour in the last, the last week has been just a blessing and amazing. And it doesn't solve a problem. Um, but it's, it's, it's the beginning of an answer to a problem that we have with animal agriculture that has to end. I mean, it, it has to end. It's not sustainable and it, it, we can't sustain it. It must end. You know what these girls are doing, Regan, Jenny, Anita. I mean, I can go on and on and on um, standing there and, and protesting and making people aware of the suffering of millions of animals. And not only are they concerned too with the animals, but they are concerned about the marginalized workers in these businesses. Um, big ag is not, you know, they may not be worried about animals, but they are also not worried about their workers as well, which creates a terrible environment for, for animals. So I think that, you know, we have to honor their, their commitment and their ability to stand there and um, feel these animals pain in order to expose it. and. Uh, I, I really feel people just just have to really remember to to thank them for their work and and we need to look after them because uh, I'm not on that front line. 
I, I'm not in a position where I can. I'm worried about my career uh, being impacted and whether I can keep food on the table. And, and, and these women are, are, are on the line. And I just want to thank them so much for what they do. So true, Julie. They're heroes. Like Regan died a hero, you know, a martyr, but a hero. She's a celebrity for, for the work that she's done. And with Jenny, with Anita, and uh, I'm in awe of them. I really am. I have so much respect for these women. And I hope and pray going forward that people follow their example and Regan's example and try and become more like her in her honor to keep her legacy going. Oh, I was, I was just going to say too that if you cannot be out there, offer them support in other ways. There are so many options, uh, opportunities to help these women stay focused and stay positive because it is a dark place to go. And if, you know, the silver lining of Regan's death is I've got to meet some incredible women and men and and they've allowed me to to um help which has healed me a bit from from this horrible trauma thank you all for for joining me today i understand it's probably difficult to talk about it right now but regan's legacy has swept the entire globe and we're all hurting with you I, i really appreciate you all taking some time out today to speak about Regan and do that legacy justice. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. It is healing. Like I'm heartbroken. Like Anita said, I get up every morning, go to phone her. I feel like I'm, you know, missing a right arm, as I said. So just like being able to talk to you and these incredible women, I'm in awe of their work. Um, it, it is healing. It's very healing. So thank you for doing this podcast. I'm so grateful to you. And I know she would be too, like she would be forever grateful. So I I can say that on her behalf. Next on the show, I am joined by Camille Labchuk. Camille is one of Canada's leading animal rights lawyers and executive director of Animal Justice, an animal rights organization which is leading the legal fight for animal protection in Canada. She's also a co-host of the podcast Poor on Order, and she joins me now. Welcome to the show, Camille. Thanks for having me, Well, It's good to be here. It's fantastic to have you here as well. To start off, for people who aren't familiar in New Zealand, I mean, you did a fantastic presentation at the Animal Law Conference last year about the work that you do, which I had the pleasure to attend. I really enjoyed it, and I know others did as well. But for those that weren't able to be there, what kind of work does animal justice do in Canada? Yeah, sure. So we're the country's only animal law organization, and we see our unique contribution that we can make to the field of improving life for animals as uh, using those legal skills to affect change. So we do that in a few different ways. Uh, one of the ways is just improving the legislation on the books. Um Canadians often look to New Zealand as an example of a country with pretty good animal laws. I know from being there that you folks don't always feel the same way, but uh, as far as comparisons between the two countries go, Canada definitely has it a lot worse. So we're trying to bring our laws into the 21st century and catch Canada up because we tend to think of ourselves as a pretty compassionate place with uh, people who want good things for animals, but our laws are pretty bad right now. So we try to improve laws. Uh, We had a pretty awesome success about a year ago when Canada banned keeping whales and dolphins in tanks. And that was one of the first times since uh, the 1800s that Canada's passed any serious new federal protection laws for animals. So that was cool. 
Another thing we try to do is uh, encourage stronger enforcement of the laws that do exist, because if the laws on the books aren't being enforced, then they might as well not exist. And we do this by pressuring government regulators, if they are involved in uh, enforcing those laws, to do a better job. Um, we've also spoken out against private enforcement of animal protection laws and um, a shift away from a Humane Society SPCA charitable model of enforcement, which I know is a discussion now that's happening around the world. And um, in our view, governments should be funding and should be funding adequately the work of doing that enforcement. And uh, the third thing we do is we go to court to fight for animal rights when it's appropriate to do so. Um, so we can talk about some of our cases, but we often intervene to protect the free speech rights of animal advocates. And uh, when an animal's issues or interests are at stake in, in a court proceeding, we try to make sure that the judge hears about those issues. Because oftentimes, if you just leave it to the two parties who are involved in the court proceeding, the animal's interests won't really get priority. And then the last thing we do is we try to promote the field of animal law by um, educating people about it, by helping animal law clubs on uh, student campuses get active, and uh, just drawing more people into the fold and hoping that more animal rights lawyers will uh, join us. I'd love to ask you more about the cases that you've taken to advocate for the speech of animal activists, and we'll get onto that in a moment. But in terms of the cases that you've taken to protect animals, could you tell us a little bit about some of those? Yeah, sure. So I guess the, the first case we ever intervened in was a case, unfortunately, about um, the sexual abuse of animals that went all the way to Canada's highest court, the Supreme Court of Canada. And in that case, the man had been charged with the offense. Um, he was arguing that he shouldn't be convicted because the conduct was not penetrative in nature and that had to be an element of the offense. So it, you know, and it ended up the court found that he um, was right. They agreed with him. They said that the common law definition of bestiality did involve that. Uh, so we lost the case, but the court still said some really positive things about the importance of protecting animals and was very complimentary to our arguments, even though they didn't ultimately agree with us. So that was still a win. And later, Parliament went back and amended the definition of, of that offense. So a positive thing in the end. Uh, another case we were involved with was in the province of Ontario, where I live. It's Canada's biggest province. And there was an external challenge to the OSPCA, the Ontario SPCA, which enforced animal protection laws. And uh, it was brought by a bunch of farmers and people who didn't want uh, a private charity or any law enforcement people coming onto their property and interfering with them and their animals. But we ended up intervening in that case. And uh, the, the judge at the lower court, at least, accepted our arguments that it was probably bad for animals and for confidence in law enforcement and our democracy that private entities were enforcing public laws without adequate oversight. So uh, that case eventually led to a complete overhaul of that system in Ontario. And now we have a public force that's charged with doing that enforcement. Right. So that last case you were speaking about, the SPCA were previously the organization that was enforcing Canada's animal welfare laws, but that's no longer the case? No, it's no longer the case. So the, the judge in the lower court ruled that it was unconstitutional for the OSPCA to continue enforcing those laws because they weren't being overseen by the government. There were no complaints procedures against their officers. There was no freedom of information ability for groups like ours or individual people to find out what's going on, what their priorities are, how their cases go. And uh, the court just found that that lack of accountability wasn't acceptable. So the judge struck down that um, system. Uh, while the case was being appealed, the Ontario SPCA actually voluntarily withdrew from enforcement. 
And they said that they felt like they'd been set up to fail uh, for all these years. They've been trying to do this work without adequate resources and with a government that was barely funding enforcement in the province. And they thought it should be something that the state took on itself. So the case eventually was appealed. Um, it was overturned on appeal. But by that time, because the OSPCA had pulled out, the government was forced to put something new in place. So we ended up with a new public enforcement system and uh, some stronger legislation as well. So in the end, it was positive. So what was the public enforcement regime that's been set up? What does that look like? Is that handled by the police or is it a new agency? It's a new agency. So it's a provincial animal welfare inspectorate. So these folks are government employees. They are able to go and um, do everything that SPCA agents formerly were able to do. They're, they're peace officers with law enforcement authority. So there's a lot of questions still about how effective the system will be. It's not automatically better just because it's a public system. Uh, we do need to make sure that there's enough inspectors to man the whole province. Uh, we need to make sure that that inspector is adequately funded and that it is doing the job it's supposed to. So those are definitely things that all animal advocates in the province need to watch. Tell me about some of those cases that you referred to earlier, protecting the rights of speech for activists and animal advocates. Sure. So this is surprisingly, uh, given that we're an animal rights organization, animal law organization, we've ended up doing a lot of defense of people's rights. And, uh, you know, it's not really surprising why when you think about it, animals don't have rights of their own, but we, as people who speak up for them, we do. And one of the ways that industry tries to oppress animals is by oppressing humans who speak up for them. So oftentimes you'll see governments passing um, laws designed to interfere with the free speech rights of animal advocates, or you'll see um, uh, industries trying to you know, silence people with slap suits or anti-whistleblower uh, regimens. So I'll uh, just give one example. A few years ago, while it was still legal to keep whales and dolphins in tanks in Canada, a man in Vancouver made a film about the Vancouver Aquarium, which, which did so. Uh, so he exposed how they keep belugas and dolphins in tanks and the ways that those animals suffer. And the Vancouver Aquarium didn't like that film very much. They were, they were not happy about it. <laughs> they filed a lawsuit against uh, Gary, the, the man who made the documentary. Gary Charbonneau's his name. And the film was called Vancouver Aquarium Uncovered, in case anyone wants to look it up. And they demanded that it got, be removed from YouTube and all of these other demands because they said that he had violated their intellectual property rights by using some footage that was filmed at the aquarium without their permission. Now... This is a little bit of a finer point about intellectual property law in Canada, so I won't get into that too much. But the point was that they didn't really have an argument and they were just abusing the court system to try to shut down his film. So a judge originally issued an injunction and removed several segments of the film just be taken off the internet, which was pretty shocking to us. And in the end, we intervened in that case. And uh, on appeal, once again, uh, the judges came out with a better decision and the whole film was allowed to, to go back up online. So one that we've been watching with some interest in New Zealand is Bill 156 that's recently passed in Ontario. This is commonly referred to as an ag-ag bill, one of many that have popped up in countries around the world, some with more success than others. What does this bill mean for whistleblowers in Canada? Yeah, well, it's, it's pretty disturbing. So ag-ag laws have quite a long history in the United States where they've been around since the 1990s, but they had a resurgence in the 2010s in response to videos from undercover investigations that showed just horrific cruelty on farms. So instead of cleaning up their act and maybe putting laws in place to protect animals on farms, the industry started pushing for these ag-gag laws. 
So they take a variety of different forms, but generally they make it illegal or very difficult to film inside barns where animals are being kept or slaughterhouses or other locations. And they punish the people who become whistleblowers and expose that information. So Canada, we, we kind of smugly thought that we were safe from gag laws for a long time because they'd passed through the states and they never made their way north of the border. Um, in fact, in the states, not only have they sort of died down, but courts are actually striking them down uh, regularly. Just a couple of weeks ago, courts struck down the North Carolina gag law. And that's happened as well in Utah, Idaho, Iowa, and Kansas now. So we kind of thought that we were insulated from egg gag laws, but unfortunately, uh, last October, I think, the governments here started looking at introducing them. And so the origin of egg gag laws in Canada is a little bit different from the states. Um, there have been a number of undercover investigations of farms in Canada, but they weren't passed immediately after those videos came out. They were passed more in response to activists trespassing on farms and uh, live streaming what they saw inside, sometimes doing a lockdown where they chain themselves, say, to pig gestation crates to make a point about the treatment of those animals. So Alberta, the province of Alberta, first passed an egg gag law last uh, November with almost no debate in only 10 days, which is record pace, breakneck speed. And then my province of Ontario followed suit. So it, it introduced a bill in December and uh, it was kind of on pause for a while because of the pandemic, but unfortunately they chose to push it forward despite the situation that we're all in. And that passed uh, mid-June. So the eight gig laws in Canada make it an offense to get access to a facility, including a farm, using false pretenses. And that's why it becomes anti-whistleblower law, uh, an anti-whistleblower law. It's because someone who uh, goes undercover to be a whistleblower, they don't disclose their full intentions. They have to keep it to themselves that they might film cruelty if they see it or they wouldn't get a job. Where did this bill really come from? I mean, you've talked... You've talked a little bit about how it seems like the motivation for these kinds of laws was dropping away. Laws of a similar kind were being struck down in the United States, but as you say, made it north of the border. I'm assuming the agriculture industry had a lot of enthusiasm for it, but politically, was it gaining momentum in Canada as a piece of legislation? Well, I would say that the bills here, so we now have two, Alberta and Ontario, and there's proposals in other provinces as well. And I would say that the public doesn't support this legislation. Uh, the only reason the governments are passing it is because the industry is asking for it. The farming industry in Canada, like in New Zealand, like in the United States, like in other countries, is very, very powerful. In fact, the dairy farmers of Canada are known in Ottawa, our capital city, as being pretty much on par with the National Rifle Association in the United States. That's quite a statement. It is. <laughs> but if you ask politicians who work on Parliament Hill in Ottawa, that's that's what they'll tell you. Yeah, wow. Um, very fearsome. They spend a lot of money lobbying. Uh, we don't know exactly how much they spend lobbying, but we know that their marketing budget is 80 million Canadian dollars alone. So that's that's quite a lot. Uh, and the industry really wants these laws because it feels threatened right now by the amount of animal activism and the exposure that animal suffering on farms is getting. Um, I think that, you know, it, it takes me to, to my one of my favorite quotes. First, they ignore you. Then they laugh at you. Then they fight you. And then you win. And uh, they're fighting us because they know that we're getting close to that winning stage where there's going to be a critical mass of the population that says this is just not acceptable. It's just not OK that we don't have laws regulating farming and that animals are kept in windowless warehouses behind closed doors without any public oversight. Um, the reality is that in Canada, and this is somewhat unlike New Zealand, but we, we don't have any regular inspections of farms. There's no 
regulations that apply specifically to set welfare standards on farms. It's basically the fox guarding the hen house. And the more the public hears about this, the more they're opposed to it. So the more the industry uh, tries to shut it down. Much like yourself previously, we haven't seen any moves towards having ag-ag laws passed in New Zealand. But it's definitely something that we don't want to be naive about. Not saying that you're naive, obviously, but I think when we saw it happening in Canada, people like myself started going, okay, this is actually something that could happen in New Zealand. We haven't seen any push for it yet, but there was something quite interesting that happened in one of New Zealand's courts very recently. Some people listening will be familiar with this case. Essentially what happened was a farmer who was caught on camera beating his cows in New Zealand had been charged with ill treatment of animals under the Animal Welfare Act. Earlier complaints by farm workers to the Ministry for Primary Industries about the farmer's behaviour were ignored. And it wasn't until footage was gathered by Farmwatch, who are volunteer investigators, that charges were finally laid. The judge deemed that evidence as inadmissible, as they didn't want to encourage further illegal activity from activists who film examples of animal abuse. My concern, and a concern shared by many others, is that this could set a precedent where footage gathered by volunteer investigators in the future could be also deemed inadmissible and could create an ag-gag by stealth. What are your thoughts about this? I I think you're right to be concerned. You've got a situation where the government's not proactively monitoring or inspecting farms to the extent that they would be needing to do so to to catch any violations or any abusive animals. And then, of course, that kind of puts the burden on members of the public or undercover investigators and volunteers to go onto farms and try to find out what's happening. And I understand the court's discomfort with maybe encouraging future trespass, but at the same time, that sidesteps a huge issue, which is that no one's watching if people don't go in there and find that information for themselves. So when you exclude that evidence, um, you know, I worry less about the effect of activists trespassing on farms and more about the effect on farmers thinking that they've got carte blanche to do whatever they want to animals because the evidence can't be used against them if somebody gets it. Is this something that I'm sure our justice systems have a lot of differences, but could a decision like this be challenged and overturned in court, do you think? Uh, You know, I think it could be. Certainly under the Canadian court system, it it could be. If there was an appeal, there there could be another attempt to bring that evidence in and the judge might decide a different way. Um, I would say... For sure in Canada and the U.S. and it sounds like probably New Zealand as well, there's lots of untested legal issues involving gathering footage in this way. And so it's not always clear um, the policy considerations behind these evidentiary exclusions and how they should play out. So going back to Bill 156, what's next do you think for this bill? Where do we go next in this battle against ag-gag laws in Canada? Well, luckily, uh, we do have the ability to challenge this bill in court in in Ontario and and also at some point in Alberta. Um, You know, very tragically, Will, just two days after the egg-egg bill passed here, a woman lost her life. So a longtime beloved animal advocate named Regan Russell, she was protesting Bill 156 at uh, Fearman's Pork Slaughterhouse which is sort of ground zero for a lot of pretty horrific things that happened to pigs. Um, It was also the scene where a woman named Anita Crines was arrested a number of years ago and charged and prosecuted for criminal mischief for giving water to thirsty pigs on their way to slaughter. So this slaughterhouse has a very bad history. And uh, a truck ran Regan over and killed her that morning. 
So um, we, for us, the stakes of this legislation are very high. We're already concerned that it's emboldening the industry to take matters into their own hands. Um, the bill actually, in addition to all the, the things we've discussed about shutting down whistleblowers, it directly targets the activities of people who protest outside of slaughterhouses by making it illegal to stop those slaughter trucks and making it illegal to give water or any substance to pigs or to interact with them. Um, some of those details are still being fleshed out by a regulation that the government promises to introduce. But in general, the bill says that you can't interact with animals on a truck. So that directly targets people like Regan who give water to pigs as an act of compassion on a hot day. And for us, we think that the, the consequences of this bill are just so drastic. And we've already seen one deadly impact of it that we know we have to challenge it in court. The news of Regan really shocked activists around the world, I think. It, it broke our hearts what happened. In fact, staff members from SAFE recently attended a vigil organised by Wellington Animal Save. After speaking to some of Regan's friends and some of the activists she worked with just earlier on the show, it sounds like she was an amazing person and was really committed to what she truly believed in. She she really was. You know, I didn't know her well, but I'd met her a number of times, usually at vigils. And um, the more I've come to know about her after her death, the more I've just been amazed at this person who who dedicated so many decades of her life to working for animals. Uh, she'd been an activist since the late 1970s, which is before many of us were even born. And uh, you name it, she was involved with it. every issue that came up over the years. She had some involvement going way back to the 80s and the 90s even. Uh, she was beloved by all. She was beautiful. She was a former model. She you know, had a presence and a profile like few other people do. And it was just so tragic to lose her. And especially that, you know, the vigil that she was at where she died, she was there protesting Bill 156. Um, she was there because activists feared that would be one of the last vigils where it was legal to do their vigil activities before 156 came into effect. So in Regan's name, we're going to fight on. And it's been really beautiful to see the people around the world who've been really touched by her story and what happened to her uh, rise up. There have been protests outside the Canadian embassy in London. I know that SAVE uh, organizations around the world are holding vigils and it's it's been really touching. You've been listening to Animal Matters. This podcast is brought to you by SAFE, the animals, New Zealand's leading animal rights organisation, and produced by myself, Will Appleby. Make sure you subscribe to stay across Animal Matters on whatever your favourite platform is. If you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating, as it helps other listeners to find the show. If you want to support the show, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash animal matters. Until next time, Kaki te anō.